Today's episode is from a suggestion from regular listener Bradley Reif. Thanks, Brad. Horse racing, gambling, adultery, knife fight shootings. The 50s and 60s were a bonkers time in Chicago. The 1850s and 1860s, that is. Today we're talking about hair trigger block, debauchery, and murder in Chicago. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get started, this episode deals with a lot of mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Chicago 1850s. Many of the illegal activities in the city took place just north of the Chicago River, roughly where that tall building at 401 North Wabash and east of there is today, in an area called the Sands. It was here you'd find a series of shanties with brothels, gambling dens, and flop houses. Due to its proximity to the water, the area initially appealed to men working on ships moored at the docks on the Chicago River, giving them a chance to enjoy a drink and a cheap place to sleep for the night. Gradually, the area grew a whole lot more sketchy. Here is how the Sands was described in the Chicago Tribune in 1857. Decidedly the vilest and most dangerous place in Chicago is the locality in the North Division near the lakeshore known as the Sands. For some years past, it has been the resort and hiding place for all sorts of criminals, while the most wretched and degraded women and their miserable pimps congregated there in large numbers. A large number of persons, mostly strangers in the city, have been enticed into the dens there and robbed. And there is but little doubt that a number of murders have been committed by the desperate characters who made those dens their homes. The most beastly sensuality and the darkest crimes had their homes on the sands, so famous in Chicago police annals. Side note, one year after this was written and just a few blocks away, a group of reformers called the Chicago Young Men's Society for Religious Improvement founded the Chicago Y. By the end of the year, their organization had increased to 355 members and made a profit of $246.85. That's nearly $9,000 in today's money. The organization is better known now as the YMCA of Metro Chicago. In 1857, former Chicago Mayor William B. Ogden purchased land in the Sands, but had difficulty getting the squatters residing in the property to leave. Ogden then turned to Chicago Mayor Long John Wentworth for help, who was eager to clean up this blight on Chicago's landscape. In April of that year, Wentworth organized a major horse race at a Chicago horse track as an enticement to the degenerate gamblers of the Sands to leave the area for the day. With the population thinned, Wentworth and Ogden headed to the Sands with a large posse, including some 30 policemen. The deputy sheriff arrived with writs of ejectment, the old-timey name for eviction notices, and those on the land were given time to move their belongings out of the structures 
before hooks and chains were attached to the buildings. According to reports, five disreputable houses and four shanties were torn down. All of this activity taking place in the morning attracted a crowd, according to the Tribune, of, quote, several thousand persons. The occupants of one or two of the remaining structures promised to vacate them by the end of the day. About 4.30 p.m. that afternoon, six of the remaining buildings burned to the ground. As the fire broke out in three of the structures simultaneously, it was believed that the fires were set by the occupants to spite the new owner of the property. Again from the April 21st, 1857 Tribune. Thus, this congregation of the vilest haunts of the most depraved and degraded creatures in our city has been literally wiped out, and the miserable beings who swarmed there driven away. Hereafter, we hope the sands will be the abode of the honest and the industrious, and that efficient measures will be taken to prevent any other portion of the city from becoming the abode of another such gathering of vile and vicious persons. I mean, sure, the Sands was essentially no more, but those who made their living there didn't just disappear. They just moved south of the river. Shortly after the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860, as the southern states were deciding whether to secede from the Union, Many of the gamblers of the South left Mississippi riverboats and headed to less chaotic cities in the North, setting up residence in Chicago. By the time the Civil War was in full swing, Chicago had a few areas where those who were so inclined could engage in underworld activity. For those gamblers who wanted to try their luck, they could do so at the upscale gambling houses on a two-block stretch of Randolph Street between Clark and State called Hair Trigger Block. More on why it was called that in a moment. Nearby on Clark Street from Randolph to Monroe was Gambler's Row, a little less upscale than Hair Trigger Block. The most seedy of all establishments were in a section south of Madison Street near the riverfront wharves. For reference, it is estimated that in 1862, one block on Clark between Van Buren and Harrison Street had 14 brothels or more. One of the sources I used for this episode is a book published in 1910 called Bygone Days in Chicago, Recollections of the Garden City of the 60s by Frederick Francis Cook. You can actually read it for free on the Internet Archive. I'll have a link in the show's notes. It is pretty amazing. Bygone Days contains a description of a place at the corner of Wells and Monroe Streets called Under the Willow, which author Cook claims was, quote, the very core of corruption, end quote. In addition to offering gambling, liquor, and sex workers at the ready, under the Willow owner Roger Plant employed a group of toughs who would follow the establishment's drunken patrons after they left, waiting until the inebriated and unaware made their way around the corner, where they were jumped by the toughs and robbed of all they had. The Chicago Tribune claimed, quote, There were undoubtedly more robberies committed there than at all other places combined, end quote. 
One newspaper story titled Brutal Conduct detailed a fight between two cabmen, Joseph Kelly and William Wall, who got into an argument at Under the Willows. Knives were pulled by both men, and Joseph Kelly was not only stabbed in the right side, but had his, quote, lip bitten in a shocking manner and his features otherwise disfigured, end quote. Now, in case you're wondering how all of this was allowed to go on at Under the Willows, it was alleged that Willows owner Roger Plant made frequent payments to local cops in order for them to look the other way. Ah, Chicago. A Chicago Tribune article later described another area as such. Dearborn and Randolph Streets at their intersection are sadly in need of moral regeneration. That locality is a disgrace to Chicago. It is the common rendezvous of all manner of disreputable characters, and one of our finest business centers has positively been converted into a thieves' corner. Last evening, a party of ladies passing that point were accosted with ribald jests and shameful accusations, and the behavior of blackleg scoundrels was such as to draw a large crowd together. Uh, The word blackleg came up a few times while researching this episode. According to Richard C. Lindbergh in his book The Gambler of Clark Street, blackleg was a southern term popular from the end of the 18th century through the latter half of the 19th century to describe a crooked gambler, a card cheat, or a con man. And yes, I am going to try to bring that phrase back into fashion. Let me try. You know Bradley Reif, that blackleg scoundrel, he suggested this week's topic. It, it may need some work. I almost forgot to mention, the population of Chicago in 1850 was around 30,000 people. Ten years later, it had more than tripled to over 109,000. Ten years after that, by 1870, just before the Great Chicago Fire, it had more than tripled again to 334,270. This influx of people in a still-developing city was bound to bring out those just looking to make a quick buck. A few others who figured prominently in this bonkers group of underworld characters included George Trussell, a tall, handsome Yankee from Vermont or Virginia or maybe just Chicago, who owned one of the nicest, most well-appointed gambling joints on Hair Trigger Block. Trussell was tops among Chicago's high rollers of the day and was known to break a few banks at other gambling establishments. One of George Trussell's other passions was horse racing. A shrewd horseman, Trussell built a large portion of his riches from backing winning horses. More on that in a bit. Trussell loved gambling and loved horses, but he also loved to drink. And when he got liquored up, he got mean. According to Herbert Asbury in his book Gangs of Chicago, quote, Sober, Trussell was pleasant enough but quiet to the point of taciturnity. Drunk, he was talkative and quarrelsome, ready to fight upon the slightest provocation. 
One recipient of George Trussell's drunken anger, according to Theodore J. Karamansky in his book Rally Around the Flag, Chicago and the Civil War, was Wilbur Story. Before coming to Chicago, Story had owned the Democratic-leaning Detroit Free Press newspaper in the 1850s, growing it significantly. Within eight years, Story had stashed away $30,000, slightly more than $1 million in today's money. Story then set his sights on Chicago, arriving in 1861 and purchasing the Chicago Times newspaper, described as poorly edited with a small audience. Now in his mid-40s, with a head of white hair, Wilbur Story set to improving the paper's circulation and influence. While Story supported newly elected President Abraham Lincoln during the 16th president's initial time in office, once talk of the Emancipation Proclamation came around, Story changed his position. In Wilbur Story's Chicago Times newspaper, Lincoln was called a, quote, lanky, nerveless, almost brainless, and vacillating old man, end quote. Uh, keep in mind, Lincoln was 52 when he was elected. Story wrote on a different occasion, quote, It is difficult to believe that so foolish an old joker can be president, end quote. Once the Emancipation Proclamation became law, Story's paper included a headline that read, The Awful Calamity of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Story was also an unbelievable racist and used his paper to share his views on African Americans living in Chicago using pretty inflammatory words. Story's aggressive stance toward Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation often made him sound as though he supported the Confederacy, something that helped him gain favor with the conservative Democrats of Chicago and, of course, riled up the liberal Republicans. The Chicago Tribune reportedly called Wilbur Story a traitor, and one of Story's own employees at the Times wrote, quote, Every loyal citizen believed he had a God-given right to attack Story on sight and kill him if he could, end quote. George Trussell, who is a staunch Republican and not a fan of Story, once knocked the editor on the head using a sizable cobblestone out on the street. Story fell to the ground and, although dazed, was coherent enough to pull a Derringer pistol from his pocket and fire a shot at Trussell. The bullet missed Trussell, but the story soon spread and let Chicagoans know Story was not a man with whom you should trifle. Honestly, Wilbur Story's tales could easily make a full podcast episode, but I'd be so annoyed by the guy with every word. Another of George Trussell's foes was Samuel Cap Hyman, described as an insufferable egotist, an excitable emotional jack-in-the-box with an irascible temper and a hazy background. Cap Hyman also had a problem with the bottle. When he got boozed up, he was prone to shoot up the town. Of this dangerous compulsion, the Tribune later remarked, quote, The practice of shooting people up on the most trifling provocation is becoming altogether too prevalent in this city. Hmm. One 
One of the more newsworthy disturbances caused by Cap Hyman occurred in 1862 when he drunkenly staggered into the lobby of the Tremont House Hotel, located on the southeast corner of Lake and Dearborn Streets, and fired a few shots into the ceiling. Hyman then refused to let anyone enter or leave the hotel for more than an hour. Finally, Chicago Police Captain Jack Nelson appeared and Cap Hyman quickly put his revolver away and surrendered, saying afterward, quote, Jack can shoot too quick for me, end quote. For reasons unknown, George Trussell and Cap Hyman could not stand each other, and since they were both prone to gunplay, especially while drunk, and they traveled in the same gambling circles, their hair-trigger tempers... Ah, so that's why it's called that. Often resulted in them taking shots at each other in the street. Fortunately, they were both horrible marksmen, tough to shoot straight when drunk, and they usually ended up shooting signs or bar mirrors without any serious harm done. George Trussell's female companion, she also claimed wife, was Mary Cosgriff, who was also called Irish Molly. Molly had come from Columbus, Ohio in 1854 and worked as a chambermaid at a local hotel before going to work at a nearby bordello. When Molly and George met, it was fireworks. He used his money and power to get Molly installed as a madam at a nice establishment, finger quotes there, and for two years they seemed to be a perfect couple attending shows and horse races, all while Trussell lavished Molly with money and gifts. In 1866, George Trussell became half-owner of a prized horse named Dexter, one of the most famous racehorses of his day. Dexter Park, a horse track that opened in the Stockyards District at Halstead and 42nd Street in 1866, was named for Trussell's winning horse. Trussell became so focused on the horse and horse racing he began to spend less time with Molly. On September 4th, 1866, George Trussell had promised to take Molly to the fall season opening of a local horse racing park, followed by a dinner party at the establishment. He didn't show for either. Upset, Molly went to the hair trigger block looking for George. She found him drinking with his friends at a bar on Randolph Street. Details here are a little hazy. There are a lot of different reports, but from everything I've read, here's what I believe happened next. Molly entered the bar wearing a beautiful white dress, her shoulders covered in a light shawl as she had planned to be out on the town. She approached George, demanding he leave with her. George was, at this point, a number of drinks into his evening, and he angrily told her to leave, which she refused to do. George Trussell then grabbed Molly by the throat and slapped her and dragged her toward the door of the saloon to throw her out. It was then, under the shawl, that Molly's shaking hand produced a revolver. She pressed the gun against the side of George Trussell's torso and pulled the trigger. George Trussell staggered back, uttering the words, I am shot, and began to retreat for a side entrance. Molly shot again, this time striking George in the back. The third shot entered his heart, dropping him to the floor. George Trussell, 32 years of age, was dead. 
Molly ran to the man she just killed, throwing herself on his body, screaming, Oh my George, my George, he is dead. A crowd formed quickly to see Molly inconsolable, shrieking, George, have I killed you? Have I killed you? Molly was arrested on the spot and taken to jail to await her trial. She had an influential supporter covering her legal bills, and in December of 1866, just four months after the shooting, was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to one year in prison. Molly only served a few months in prison before being pardoned by Illinois Governor Richard J. Oglesby. Wilbur Story, the racist borderline Confederacy-supporting owner of the Chicago Times newspaper, later shared his thoughts about the Trussell situation in an editorial, writing, quote, It is well that she had been pardoned. She had only killed a man, shot him to the heart in a saloon. Shooting a man in a saloon was good, a very good work. If Molly Trussell had been hung for performing so great a service to mankind and to the temperance reform, a judicial murder would have been committed. Wilbur Story continued publishing the Chicago Times with a few setbacks, including the paper's plant being destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, after which he rebuilt. Story began to experience health issues in 1877, and a year later he suffered a stroke. He died at his Chicago home in October of 1884 at the age of 64 and is buried at Rose Hill Cemetery. In the spring of 1867, Molly Trussell claimed that she, quote, would go and sin no more, and quote, by entering a convent in New York. She made it to New York, but quickly changed her mind, deciding she instead wanted to travel to California. Molly Trussell did state that she was determined to never return to Chicago. Molly Trussell turned up in San Francisco, where she set up a new house of ill repute. Allegedly, her past fame made her establishment quite a draw to customers, but it also attracted the attention of the authorities. Molly ended up going before the police for assaulting someone with a bowie knife and a well-known merchant in the area accused Molly Trussell of luring his young daughter into the life. In 1874, Molly Trussell was spotted in South Bend, Indiana. A reporter sat down and spoke with her about her life and George Trussell. Not much new was shared, although Molly did reveal her reason for being in South Bend was to pick up her son who had been attending Notre Dame College. Molly had claimed that George Trussell was the boy's father, but I don't believe the numbers line up. An article in a July 1885 Interocean newspaper in Chicago claimed Molly eventually moved to New Orleans, where she established another brothel. Unfortunately, what became of Molly Trussell and her son after 1885 is unclear. One would hope she found some peace after the chaos of living through the hair-trigger block years. As for George Trussell's old nemesis Cap Hyman, 
He had taken up with gentle Annie Stafford, who once raised hell in the sands herself. With Hyman's support, Annie became a madam at an upscale establishment on North Wells Street, but Annie wanted more. She wanted Hyman to marry her. Hyman reminded Annie that he was not the marrying kind, but he quickly changed his mind in late September of 1866. That's when Annie showed up at Cap's gambling house on Randolph Street, armed with a rawhide whip. Annie dragged Cap off the sofa on which he was napping, throwing him down the stairs. Annie then pursued Cap down the street, cracking the whip at his backside as he howled in pain. A few weeks later, the two were married. Cap and Annie later leased a, quote, high-toned roadhouse and, quote, called Sunnyside at what is now North Clark Street at Montrose, well north of the Hair Trigger block. The guest of honor? Police Captain Jack Nelson, the same cop who persuaded Cap to stop shooting up the Tremont House Hotel four years before. Although the grand opening of the Sunnyside was a success, the high-toned roadhouse quickly failed. Within six months, Cap Hyman returned gambling, basically bankrupt, and Annie to returning a brothel. Cap opened a small confectionery store on Randolph Street in an attempt to go straight, but that was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Hyman turned to religion, but gradually the effects of tuberculosis and an untreated venereal disease began to take their toll on him. Cap Hyman died in 1876, a penniless vagrant at the Johnstown House, a seedy boarding house at the corner of Madison and Desplaines. He was 40 years old. Cap Hyman's funeral was held at St. Patrick's Church at the corner of Desplaines and West Adams, and his remains laid to rest at Calvary Cemetery. Annie Stafford was in the news again in June of 1878 when her name appeared in Chicago's Interocean newspaper in their police blotter. She was sentenced to do $5 worth of scrubbing, quote, for getting tight, end quote. That's old-timey slang for getting drunk. Annie reportedly passed away in 1882. The area that was once the Sands, in addition to being where that tall building with the one name on it is, it was also where the Wrigley Building now stands on Michigan Avenue just north of the Chicago River. As for Hair Trigger Block, the site of so much debauchery and the shooting of George Trussell, that's now part of Chicago's Theater District, where you'll find James M. Niederlander Theater, as well as upscale hotels and restaurants, the days of Hair Trigger Block and Gambler's Row long relegated to Chicago's past. Thanks for listening to today's episode about Hair Trigger Block, Debauchery and Murder in Chicago. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. 
Much of this story was influenced by a number of books to which I have links to, as well as other items related to Chicago's amazing history in the show's notes. If you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more, anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, John. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.